Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded March 29th and April 2nd, 2023. And welcome to the Spring of Discontent. While leaders in the capitals of Europe and America promise to carry on the Ukraine proxy war no matter the price, the people are already in the streets protesting the real and rising costs of that belligerence. For Canadians, whose government is already full-throatedly behind the bellicose stance against Russia, prospects of an expanded war against China and Iran, battles by sanction in Venezuela, Nicaragua and elsewhere, there is to Haiti. Last week, the Trudeau Liberals blithely announced another $100 million to be delivered to the tiny island nation's military and police effort to keep the rest of population under heel. This on top of millions already delivered. It's almost as if Ottawa believes the fatted tax goose's golden eggs will never flag. Eve Angler is an independent Montreal-based journalist and author. He's written 12 books on Canadian foreign policy, including Canada in Haiti, Waging War on the Poor Majority, co-authored with Anthony Fenton. His recent article, Canadian government prioritizes war over climate crisis is a troubling portrait of a country few here in our home and native land would recognize. Eve Angler in the first half. And just what is Canada's place in the world? Generations of us have been taught we are global agents of good, fair-minded, and justice-seeking. You know, wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, we'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, etc., etc. It'd be a great story if only it were true. Prasanna Shamagathis completed an advanced degree at one of Canada's world-class universities, but found, beyond Canada's two solitudes, another bifurcation, one not in the curriculum, separating the real from an imagined nation. And so, he says, he set out on an epic three-year journey of discovery from coast to coast to coast and across the trackless prairies. He documented his Canadian quest in the film series Truth to the Powerless, an investigation into Canada's foreign policy. Prasanashan Magathas and the hunt for Canada's elusive identity in the second half. But first, Eve Engler and Trudeau of the Tropics, taking Haiti. Welcome back to the show, Eve. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, it's always my pleasure. You know that. Well, well, Eve, before we tackle Justin's uh, Haitian adventures, you reported recently in an article titled Pro-Israel and Ukraine Groups Use Identity Politics to Attack Free Speech about an effort to cancel a lecture you were scheduled to deliver at King's College in London, Ontario. Uh, now, Eve, why would anyone want to silence you? Good question. I, I don't know. It's <laughs> shouldn't everyone want to want to hear what I have to say? No. Yeah. It, basically, it was an event on uh, Canada's historic ties to Palestinian dispossession, and the Ukrainian student group on campus put out a statement, basically saying or explicitly saying that that I was a Russian propagandist and uh, my event should be uh, canceled because it it would uh, potentially lead to violence. Uh, against Ukrainian students on campus. It was pretty uh, out there, uh, but um, unfortunately, the political climate on the uh, NATO proxy wars in Canada is pretty out there as well. Um, So it was very much an example of a Ukrainian student group following the sort of playbook of of the uh, Zionist organizations, which is to to say that... uh, any uh, challenging of their political views is a, you know, sort of a, a hate uh, instance of hate. Um, it was a similar method, similar tactic uh, six weeks or two months ago now, I guess, um, when we had an event at, at Carleton. They tried to shut it down. And then there was a couple articles afterwards basically saying, going after the PERG, the, the public interest research group that had, all they had really done is booked the room for this 
event on on paths to peace in Ukraine, and uh, they booked a room for the Ottawa uh, Peace Council, and uh, and they were saying that the the PERG should be uh, should have its funding uh, cut from uh, students because they had just you know booked this room for the Peace Council, which they've been like doing for years and years. Uh, yeah, so- well, you were you were attacked in that instance by a guy named Matthew Selinger, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and he he said he called you. He says Eve Angler is a quote master of historical revisionism that runs in line with r- Russian propaganda, and he also said that the Oberg should be held to account for allowing um, the hateful and vilifying rhetoric. Uh, of the the meeting that you had scheduled and that went ahead in this instance, what was the title of that that event again? I believe it was the uh, the path towards peace in Ukraine. Um, hateful. That that yeah. sounds just very, horrendous. Very hateful stuff. <laughs> but but, it, but, but it, it went ahead. All of all of these meetings did go ahead, though, right? They did. They all did go ahead. They, you know, and, and to be honest with you, I mean, these weren't in the case of the Carlton event. It was like planned four or five days beforehand there was i don't know 25 people that showed at at king's college maybe it was more like 50 people but again that event was about palestine it wouldn't i wouldn't even have touched on ukraine except for the fact they put out this uh statement and i actually did an event at ham at mcmaster in hamilton uh, the day before and there was also uh not as doesn't seem as formal of an effort to shut it down but the security got involved and stuff but yeah it's a it's a pretty remarkable climate i mean you know i i uh i posted a uh a clip where i asked uh justin trudeau on sunday here in montreal at this greek parade uh why he keeps ramping up the proxy war uh with russia and uh and these these establishment this guy from the mcdonald laurie institute slams this as like uh this out there crazy uh, uh just a just a fu trudeau people and same thing when there was a protest against uh, uh joe biden's visit to ottawa uh i tweeted out about it same person from the mcdonald laurie institute which is you know a supposedly respectable uh, uh think tank uh he, you know he framed a protest against the u.s president as just a some sort of like wild out there kind of right wing, right wing, left wing coming together in this, I mean, you know, protesting the U.S. war in Vietnam, protesting uh, U.S. Uh, invasion of Iraq, protesting contra U.S. contra war against Nicaragua. I mean, there's a long history of protesting U.S. militarism by Canadians. And so the, to f- reframe uh, this stuff is all kind of like you know not as you know anti-war and not as you know a real effort at 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 understanding what's actually going on in Ukraine and not just the sort of Russia bad uh, NATO good kind of uh, framing that we get in our media. It's um, it's considered you know really marginal and so and so these Ukrainian student groups on campus even though that's like, you know, 25, 40, 50 people showing up at these events, they're trying to shut them down. Personally, it seems almost, you know, just ignore it rather than, um, but but I think it's like they, they fear that if you get a, give a little space to, to uh, people questioning the dominant narrative, then maybe that will start snowballing. And so, and so what they want to do is, of course, just uh, not even have that, uh, at that discussion. But I think it's very much reflective of the, of the political climate where they feel comfortable to, you know, explicitly call for shutting down of events co- about the path towards, uh, towards peace. 
well, it sounds like full spectrum dominance uh, of the the political debate. For sure, that's they 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 feel like that that you know they they have that and they want to enforce that by by making sure that uh, you know a dozen or two dozen students don't hear a hear a different perspective. And did you say that was the McDonald Laurier Institute that talked about left and right coming together in criticizing you? Yeah, it's Kolga. Um, uh, is it? I think Marcus Kolga, I believe. He, he's actually he had, he heads up the set up the disin the disinfo program at McDonald McDonald Laurier Institute uh, established maybe two or three years ago, and that at that time it was more focused on Russia, you know, intervening in Canada for disinfo. Now, of course, it's sort of China. It's sort of shifted towards China. That was, of course, or maybe not surprisingly funded by the U.S. Uh, embassy. That's who provided the seed funding to the McDonald Laurier Institute to uh, to help Canada uh, oppose, you know, foreign disinformation. You know, when it's the U.S. funding it, of course, it's not it's not uh, foreign uh, intervention. But when it's, uh, you know, Russia or China, then it's um, foreign intervention and foreign disinformation. But yeah, so this is this is the climate. It's, uh, you know, imperative that we do what we can to break break through uh, this climate, I I I know at at University of Victoria, there's been a real campaign against the Young Communist League, uh, which is on on this issue from the Ukrainian groups. Um, I think that one of the things that should be done in the fall is that um, with the new semester at universities, should be a uh, you know national tour to as many campuses as possible to organize events to really kind of uh, shove it right in their faces and say, no, we're gonna we're gonna have these events on campus and and you know you can come and you can criticize but we're not going to shut us down but uh definitely have to kind of puncture the uh, the uh, one-sided uh, uh media sphere on this the last time you and i spoke was in early february and and on that same program i featured ty and Cherpushek and uh, tyson strandland both canadians of of um ukrainian descent that were caught in the maelstrom of the UVic debate back then. And I, I, I haven't followed up, actually. I, I'm, I'm not sure what became of it, but they were taking a, a lot of heat uh, at, at the time, at least. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Gorilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Eve Angler. Eve's an independent Montreal-based journalist and author. He's written a dozen books on Canadian foreign policy, including Canada and Haiti, Waging War on the Poor Majority. That's with Anthony Fenton. His recent article, Canadian Government Prioritizes War Over Climate Cri- uh, Crisis, is a troubling portrait, I say, of a country few here in our home and native land would recognize. Well, another issue that I wanted to talk to you about, and you covered in that article too, is uh, what's going on in Haiti. I said in the introduction, Eve, that the the Ottawa must think that the 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 gold egg laying goose that is the tax uh, uh, revenue craw collectors is a, is an endless font of, of lucre. Uh, the way that they're throwing the money around, and just last week they announced a hundred million more to be doled out to. Haiti's police and military. What's going on? Well, uh, the U.S. Joe Biden um, was in Ottawa partly to press Canada to lead a foreign military mission to Haiti. That's something that's been on the agenda for about it's good eight months now, really, when Canada began the process of building international support for that. It was uh, stymied, I think, in significant part because Russia and China have have been unwilling to go along with the U.S. push at the uh, uh, Security Council for a uh, United Nations um, uh, mission. 
and the Caribbean countries and other uh, Latin American countries aren't keen without uh, a UN um, force under UN umbrella. And so Canada has been right at the center of this process now for, you know, like I said, months and months. And so they've, you know, they've sent by aircraft to spy over Haiti. They've sent, they just sent two naval vessels off the coast. And so, uh, but they don't want to, they don't want to set an actual military force. And so they made a big announcement of another $100 million to the Haitian police. You know, I've been very critical of uh, Canada's role with the Haitian police now going back two decades, because basically after overthrowing the elected government in 2004, well, first of all, before overthrowing the elected government in 2004, they worked to undermine the Haitian police. So there was a sort of fledgling police force that was actually being attacked by the uh, the rebel forces from the Dominican Republic that were paramilitaries, former Haitian soldiers that were working to destabilize the elected government. And so at that time, in the early 2000s, the the U.S. and Canada were trying to weaken the Haitian police because it, it, it was, you know, to a certain extent defending the elected government. And there was, a, I think, a genuine effort to, to try to have a, a, you know, a somewhat functioning police force. And, and you know, we can debate police forces kind of at a general level and whether we want to, you know, defund the police. But but in the case of Haiti, I mean, the history is of, is these these uh, policing forces and military security forces have really just been like tools of, of political intervention, usually by the U.S. Uh, and that's certainly been the case since the U.S. occupation of 1915 to 34, where they created the modern Haitian, uh, Haitian military. And they use that to overthrow government. So anyways, in the early 2000s, there was a sort of fledgling force that was protected, you know, it was the defended the, the elected government from these paramilitary attacks and Canada, U.S. worked to undermine it. And then after the coup, they they integrated all these former military, all these people with terrible human rights records that had been you know, basically tools of Washington and tools of the Haitian elite. They integrated into the Haitian police force and, and that force killed, you know, hundreds, thousands even in the two years of the coup government from 2004 to 2006. And then it, it continued on and it's sort of, you know, been the tool of, of uh, in part of elite and, and foreign influence uh, in the country. Now, so fast forward to today, the unfortunate situation is that the security situation in Haiti is, has disintegrated to such an extent that you can make a case that the police force is, you know, somewhat progressive, right, to, or, or to put it differently, to build up the repressive apparatus of the Haitian state, i.e. the police, that that, in fact, has somewhat of a progressive uh, dimension to it because the alternative is, is, is so, so grim. Now, obviously, there's all kinds of complications within that. There's all kinds of ties between the gangs that have all kinds of influence and the Haitian police. And there's, you know, uh, it's still a very repressive apparatus. They still, you know, kill peaceful demonstrators. They still kill journalists reporting on them, et cetera, et cetera. But the situation, again, has disintegrated so much. So, but the Canadian government announced another $100 million in aid to the police. It's it's not, it's, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm kind of somewhat agnostic on it. Not that I, certainly not, don't support it. Uh, I wouldn't be, you know, harshly critical of it like I would be in the past because, like I said, things have gone so sour. Um, obviously, if you broaden the political context to understand how Canada has overseen this disintegration of Haitian of, of Haitian um, 
political life, of Haitian security, of just, you know, Haitian society, and particularly in Paul Prince. Canada is obviously a huge culprit. And and as uh, the the uh, Solidarité Québec IT press release uh, on, on, on this issue pointed out that, you know, these are the ones that, you know, lit, lit the fire in Haiti. And now they're now they're uh, uh, justifying um uh, putting out the flames, and they're the ones that need to, you know, be called on to put out the flames. But uh, yeah, so it, it's a it's a a grim situation. I mean, the the the, the simple demand, and I think the the one that should be front and center on Canada's role, discussing Canada's role in Haiti, is why are we part of this core group of foreign ambassadors that appointed Ariel Henry, who is overseeing the last twenty months of of disintegration, and this core group that's had all this influence over Haiti for the most of the past two decades. Well, and Henri is the unelected prime minister who, you know, doesn't know when to keep, uh, essentially. But Eva, is all is any of this money? I mean, who's who's designing where this so-called aid to the to the uh, militarized police in Haiti is going to go? And this isn't for beat cops. This is Canada's already sent armored personnel carriers, uh, weaponry. Um, they've had the Canadian military doing exercises and flying over, <laughs> saying that they're going after the gangs by air and by sea. I mean, th- this doesn't look like they're trying to make the neighborhood any safer for Haitians. Well, well I, I would say I'm of two two minds on that. Like, I, I think things from a strictly Canadian capitalist perspective, things have disintegrated so much in Haiti that they the Haitian elite and their allies among the Canadian, uh, you know, capitalist class that have interests in Haiti, they want a reduction in the in the uh, in the kidnapping, in the insecurity. Even even the wealthy, even even Piedsonville, the wealthier neighborhood of Port-au-Prince, way up the hill, even their security insecurity has hit hit a, reached a point where it's you know difficult to function. So so I do think that the Canadian government and the U.S. government wants. They want they want a, you know a more stabilized, undemocratic regime, right? They, you know, they, I mean, obviously there's all these contradictions within that. In that it's the PHTK, these this like oligarchic capitalists uh, or oligarchic gangsters that we've like sort of imposed over the past 12 years on Haiti, the political party that's been ruling for the last uh, 12 years. Um, uh, that's they've been working with these with these you know criminal elements that have empowered the the uh, criminal elements to to the point and I, and they did it in part for political reasons right to repress the population because they know that the majority population is not on board with their very regressive uh, uh, policies. Um, so that, but I think from a, from a strictly uh, a business perspective, things have spiraled out of control from a Canadian corporate and and uh, a U.S. corporate kind of perspective. So I think that they are of the Canadian government is of actually of two minds, and that they do want um, to sort of you know a, a more functioning state. Uh, apparatus that has, you know, greater control over over Pohol Prince uh, specifically, but simultaneously, the thing they the thing they're most concerned about is is they don't want those those uh, popular forces, the the uh, you know those who've been calling for poverty with dignity for the past thirty years in Haiti that we've worked to to sabotage uh, uh, repeatedly, mostly through the through the organizational structure of 
of, uh, of Famille Lavalas and, and, and uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the most popular politician in the country. What the thing Canada wants, you know, the least thing they want to work against the most, to make sure that they, they don't get power. So they prefer, you know, chaos than, than um, sort of a uh, popular sovereign, sovereignty-minded uh, uh, political movement from, from gaining power. Um, but they don't, I don't think they actually do want the current situation uh, uh, either. You, you mentioned uh, uh, Aristide when he was in, though. I, I recall that he disbanded the army in, uh, uh, what was it, um, 2004. Am I remembering that right? He disbanded the army uh, in 95, just oh, as, okay. just as his, his mandate. Uh, he was, of course, elected in 1990, took office in 91. He had lasted eight months, and then he was overthrown in a military coup. Uh, that lasted for more than three years, and he was uh, returned to office uh, for about 18 months. And at the end of his um, his mandate, uh, it, this was part of the struggle when the Americans and Canadians were trying to um, get their people in in the military. They were supposed to you know, uh, get the human rights abusers out of the military, and there was a sort of political battle going on between Aristide and. Uh, primarily Washington. And then Aristide responded by saying, okay, I'm just, I'm just eliminating the military and want to keep the ban, the, the military ban to <laughs> prevail the basic constitutional requirement to have some military, which you just kept the, the military banned, and, um, and then to um, uh, have a police force. And, uh, and I think that this was something that was, you know, widely viewed as a big, big step forward for human rights uh, in Haiti, because the military had really just been a tool of uh, of repression that again was created. The modern Haitian military was created during the U.S. occupation of uh, 1915 to 34, and so, but it was former military that the U.S. and the Haitian elite used to come uh, attack the elected government via the Dominican Republic between 2001 and 2004 to destabilize the Aristide government and ultimately take take control of uh, a few cities. That provided the pretext for the U.S. and Canada to send the uh, the uh, troops to uh, to physically uh, uh, remove Aristide from the uh, from the country. Well, and this in the context of decades of uh, uh, brutal uh, dictatorship of the Duvalier father and son, and, and uh, in before that too. For sure, for sure, and so uh, yeah, so the you know the Haiti, uh, the Haitian population has has had a long-standing bad relationship to state forces with uh, with guns. <laughs> they they have um, they have done a lot of horrors to uh, to keep the poor poor, and so in that context, any Canadian contribution, a hundred million dollars contribution to giving more guns to the to a state apparatus that is designed to work against uh, in a very aggressive way uh, the population is obviously something that should be uh, 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 questioned quite uh, quite aggressively, and I'd like to question that very much, but not. I'd like to question that in the context of the Canadian military. We're out of time for this segment, Eve. Can you stick around and we can we extend? For sure. Now I'm going to, for the rest of you. I'm going to take a break, and uh, I'll be back with uh, Persena Shan Mugathis. We're going to talk about his fantastic film series, Truth to the Powerless, uh, a series that Eve you took part in. I know uh, it's an investigation into Canada's foreign policy, which of course is your bailiwick as well. But stick around after the break for that. Thanks, Eve. Well, I got I got to think that we're not alone. 
I'm sitting in my house watching all this happen, and I, I've, I've arrived to a point where I just can't keep my mouth shut anymore. Guerrilla Radio, you're not alone. So now, Eve, uh, I, I mentioned the $100 million that just recently, last week or 10 days ago, the Canadian government uh, said, on top of all the other money that it sent down to Haiti, uh, the budget, the Canadian budget, the federal budget came in yesterday as we're re- recording this. And I know that you're, uh, you follow this very closely. Uh, how did the military do? I know that there, there, there's been a lot of criticism about the budget, that it didn't give anything for, you wrote yourself about the environment, but also about the healthcare system seems to be left in the lurch, transportation as well. Uh, but the military doesn't seem to be hurting. Uh, have you followed how they made out? Yeah, the military has had a uh, well. It's had, it's, had a, it's had a good year, um, but it's had a uh, it's had a go- particularly good last couple uh, couple weeks or a week or so with Joe Biden's visit, and there's been all kinds of announcements and the uh, of increased military spending and in the budget. Uh, Tamara Lawrence, a well-known uh, a peace activist. Uh, did a tweet uh, that looked at some of the uh, the mili- military parts in the in the budget. Um, uh, 38.6 billion dollars over 20 years for uh, NORAD. Uh, uh, 2.1 billion dollars over uh, seven years, and another 700 million for a NATO budget line. Uh, another 1.4 billion over 14 years for new critical weapon systems needed to protect Canadian armed forces in case of high intensity conflict, including including air defense, anti-tank and anti-drone capabilities. Uh, a whole series of other big, big budget lines, uh, uh, of course, you know, confirming um, more than 50, Tamara says more than $55 billion for NATO and NORAD programs. And that just announced. And then, um, of course, more money for for Ukraine, and um, and then during Biden's visit uh, or a day or two before Biden's visit, they announced 1.4 billion to enhance the uh, Dwyer Hill uh, base where the uh, Joint Task Force Two, the Canadian Special Forces, right. are 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 uh, based. Um, uh, we got the we got the big fighter jet. Uh, they announced seven seven point three billion, I believe it was to. Um, to just uh, upgrade uh, current bases so they can handle the F-35s. So the F-35s are going to cost, I think it's, we, we don't really know exactly, but something around $20 billion uh, up front, probably about $70 billion over the life cycle. But on top of that, they, you know, to, to, uh, they need to upgrade the, some of the, um, I guess, the, uh, the, the landing strips and, and the different, uh, uh, well, from what I what I've seen, they don't really need landing strips. They they they're infamously crash prone. These these <laughs> incredibly expensive pieces of machinery. But let's not be all bad on them, though. The, the, it looks like they got one thing right. They're going to send along the release I'm looking at from the DND uh, 244.8 million dollars to promote culture changes and modernize the military justice system. But more importantly, they want to expand health and physical fitness services to be more responsive to women's needs. So, I mean, they're, they're moving uh, in a progressive direction by the sounds of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like the, 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 the big debate you can have on the military is we can you're allowed to sort of criticize it for being a uh, hub of uh, of sexual uh, violence and uh, misogyny 
Um, that's sort of like there's a fairly, I would say, a fairly rigorous debate that's been happening. It's kind of died down over the past year because the, the Ukraine uh, NATO proxy war has kind of overshadowed it. And it's we've gone into this. You don't even want to criticize the you know sexual violence in the military. But but there had been a couple of years of quite extensive debate on that. Um, but, you know, what Canadian weapons are used to kill people or kill women in Afghanistan or, or girls in, uh, uh, in Libya or, or that, that's not really, you know, a debate that's allowed to be uh, had in any sort of rigorous way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the military is, is you know, is, is, is in the, the Trudeau government is into talking about how there's problems with racism and sexism in the military, but they're certainly not into uh, 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 questioning the the utility of of the whole force, and 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 just you know one point that always needs to be kept in mind when we talk about the Canadian military and funding the Canadian military, uh, and Biden's visit you know proved it one more time, which is every dollar that's given to the Canadian military is one more dollar for the U.S. empire. Uh, there are very few countries, maybe if any others. Uh, where a neighboring country, the main demand or a main demand that the president of that country or leader of that country makes when coming to the other country, bordering country, is to increase your military spending. Most countries don't want the country on their border to increase their military spending because they're nervous they, they could invade, or if they may want to invade the other country, that increasing military spending uh, might might uh, provide some defense from a you know a potential invasion. But in the case of Canada, the U.S. constantly pressures Canada to spend more and more on the military because the Canadian military is structured uh, from its operational doctrine to the weapons it purchases to the the thinking of the military leadership to uh, work to expand uh, U.S. power around the world. And, you know, one of the announcements uh, Anita Anand made a couple days ago here was she boasted about how we got three, this time we got three naval vessels that have just been dispatched to to um, to the South China Sea to, you know, go on those uh, provocative uh uh, missions that the U.S. leads to, you know, right around Chinese territorial waters and uh, stoke the conflict between uh, China and different different Asian countries over 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 uh, territorial waters. Um, so so that you know, Canada's military, uh, Canadian funding to the military is, you know, the, the, in the case of the special forces. In fact, the Ottawa Citizen reported that the contract, the the one point. Um, a $1.4 billion contract to upgrade the special forces base. In fact, it was signed back in November and bits of it have begun uh, already, but they waited to make the announcement just before Biden's visit because it was all part of this sort of, you know, hey, we're ser we're serving the U.S. empire. The U.S. empire wants us to contribute more to, you know, global warfare. And, and, uh, and so, um, the it's 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 in the open it's 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 remarkable the you know the media cheerleads that that were you know canada needs to just devote more uh public resources to to the killing machine because because uh the us uh, wants us to um that's the that's the dominant narrative in 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 our media um and uh you know the us would the day before biden came he you know bombed Syria again and uh, uh, killed, uh, I, I think it might 16 people, I think was the number, uh, uh, you know, in the U.S. is bombing, I think in the past 20 years is 330,000 bombs. 
I think something like a dozen countries the U.S. has drawn. I mean, it's just uh, the idea that that we should be like, you know, contributing more uh, public resources to that war machine is is just complete uh, insanity. But that's uh, that's where the uh, the dominant ethos of Canadian political culture uh, is. Well, and again, reading from this budget release uh, from the DND, uh, they say that they that it includes uh, 6.1 uh, billion to. Oh, I'm reading from 2022's budget. Jesus, I'm not even got the 23. But in that budget, it says 6.1 billion to increase defense capabilities. Improve continental defense. Now that's the buzzword, continental defense, which means it's not necessarily for us; it's for our our whole continent, which is actually the United States. But throughout uh, all the money they're spending, they keep on insisting that that they're doing all this to stand ready to defend our security, Canadians' security, and we'll always be there for Canadians. I mean, Canadians, Canadians, Canadians appears so many times in this uh, first paragraph. You write, and we've talked about in the past, if uh, the Canadian government, if push came to shove, we're not sure whose side they would come in on if, say, the Americans decided, oh, well, we're tired of the vagaries of Canadian democracy, we're going to just take over. It's not entirely certain who the Canadian military would defend, the American interests or those of the citizenry here. Oh, I mean, I think there's a very high likelihood that they, if if uh, if there was a socialist-minded government that was breaking away from NATO and NORAD, and and um, that you know the military would try to overthrow that government. But what I go one step further, I I joked, you know, you know, probably probably true that that if the U.S. military invaded Canada, that the Canadian military would support that invasion because the Canadian military supports every U.S. invasion everywhere, right? They're so integrated to the U.S. military structure that they it's almost impossible for the U.S. to go, you know, NORAD, and people talk about NORAD as being defense. Well, NORAD radar, radar systems support U.S. bombing all over the world today, right? They, they you know, Canadians, so there's just so many different ways the Canadian military is tied into the U.S. military um, that it would uh, that that it would be um, uh, assisting um, uh, an invasion, um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, all that's kind of like eliminated from the discussion. As is, you know, like just the UN experts uh, talked about all these war crimes taking place in Libya. Uh, both against Libyans and against migrants in Libya. Here now, 12 years later, since Canada bombed, oversaw the NATO campaign bombing Libya, uh, the country's still divided, horrible human rights uh, situation. And you won't even find, you basically never find any media outlet that even references Canada's um, uh, you know, role in that disaster that continues today. Another one on a little bit that... Um, and that was pointed out in uh, by uh, Scott Taylor, uh, you know, kind of the, he represents sort of the descent end of the of the military. Uh, he he points out that you know we're all this you know we're sending naval vessels to off the South China Sea and we're all this ramping up of rhetoric around China, the belligerent China. Well, China spends 1.3 percent of its GDP on its military. That's the same amount as Canada spends. On its military, so we're supposed to be. We have to ramp up our military spending because we have to keep up with the big, bad, aggressive, militaristic China. Um, but, but 
you know, China spends the same amount on the GDP. It's the U.S. that spends about three times, three times uh, uh, its its proportion of GDP on on the military uh, than Canada and and you know than China. Um, so there's so many of these elements when you when you dig down into it and you you ask yourself these questions about Mexico. Okay, so so why is you know why wouldn't Mexico if if Canada is such a th- under such a threat from China. Why wouldn't Mexico also be under that like kind of equivalence, sort of geographically? Um, you know, Mexico had barely has even has an air force. Uh, I think it's like six billion that Mexico spends on its military, whereas Canada it's something around thirty billion. Um, you know, and so right, like these questions are just not not even kind of asked. Uh, and everyone who knows, everyone who thinks about it for a second knows, there's only one country that could possibly invade Canada, and that's the U.S. Um, and so, uh, that's not an argument to like build up a military force to, to, to stop American invasion. It's an argument, I think, in fact, to, to spend less on the military and to support those forces within U.S. society that also want to spend less on the military and bolster those forces rather than, uh, bolstering the militaristic forces by participating in NORAD and NATO and Five Eyes. Uh, like we do, uh, like we do today. Well, and looking at some of the releases from DND, they're predictable. Like every sentence begins talking about Canada, Canadian sovereignty, and defense. You know, our safety is is primal. But it, before the sentence peters out, it, it stresses that we're protecting not only all of those things, but the protecting North America and supporting our allies around the world. Well, our allies around the world, NATO, the United States. But this means sending, as you mentioned earlier, the ships are off to the China Sea, protecting Canada from thousands of miles away. These uh, super expensive F-35s are going to be sent, you know, who knows where under NORAD's umbrella or some other. They'll they'll be dropping bombs as they did in Libya on some far-flung country for the goals of NATO and the United States, not to protect Canada at all. At least it would be the, the furthest stretch from it. But in your article, Eve, uh, you talked, you mentioned earlier about Dwyer Hill, and this is with the uh, JTF2. Can you, what I found in your article uh, so worrying was the fact that the definition of JTF2 and the way it's used, you, they've got this 1.4 billion dollars that you mentioned but the fact that jf2 they they aren't really answerable the way that the rest of the canadian military is do you want to go into that a little bit yeah i mean it's it's pretty simple there's two there's two there's two things they the reasons why you know jtf2 was created in in 1993 and uh canadian special forces command in 2006 and now it's about 2500 uh members uh and there's two reasons why they they want this. One is they're elite, and they are, they are. I mean, you you should you read about like the training they have to go through and the exercise they have to go through to 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 uh, to progress in you know to become a member of JTF two, which is the elite of the elite within the Canadian military. There, it's it's you know these are these are impressive uh, uh, warriors if you want to use use their language. Now the other side to that is that they. Um, it's secretive, right? So, from the Canadian government standpoint and the military standpoint, why they building up this the special forces is because they can deploy them, and uh, the public is none the wiser. Uh, so, what we hear about 
we don't we can't confirm it's not like a 100 percent that Canadian special forces were on the ground in Libya there was a there's reports that they were I'm talking about in 2011 there's reports that they were there's the fact that the closest confirmation we have is that the the their colors in the post-war parade that was big parade that Harper organized that their colors appeared uh, this is coming from uh, from uh, Scott Taylor, who who witnessed it. Um, uh, that's you know that's the confirmation, but it was never publicly reported. Now, it's that's a big deal because and Scott Scott Taylor, you've sorry to cut in, but he he's a he's a pretty solid source yeah, of yeah, this kind the, of information. Yeah, he's uh, esprit du corps, uh, and he was uh, you know long he was in the military for many years, and he's a very very prominent military reporter. Um, and and but 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 the fact that that we don't know this is really important because the United Nations Security Council Resol- resolution 1973 was absolutely explicit when when op- we're giving this this no fly zone which you know they of course violated by by ultimately killing Gaddafi but but even by backing the 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 rebels uh, the no fly zone was supposed to be just about protecting civilians and they they violated by by expanding it you know that that definition greatly but it explicitly said no foreign forces on the ground. And so the fact that there were Canadian special forces on the ground, which is not, we can't confirm to 100%, but pretty pretty close to that, um, means that we were in, in you know, explicit violation of, 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 of international law. And so, yeah, from the Canadian government's perspective, that's appealing. You know, in 2019, there was this, uh, this, this uh, footage that the Haiti Information Project uh, found or they had somebody at the Port-au-Prince airport, uh, Toussaint Louverture airport in Port-au-Prince, and they they saw these uh, these four uh, undercovers with these big guns, these like big dudes, white dudes, of course, in Haiti. And uh, and uh, again, we're not 100% sure they were Canadian special forces, but I I reached out to an important uh, military reporter, and he he was pretty certain that two of them were were uh, JTF2 and two were the um, the other uh, uh, special forces. Uh, but again, there was never a press release. There was never any statement. We don't exactly know what they were doing. There's all kind of, you know, Haiti Information Project had their speculation. Same thing the night that Aristide was uh, taken out by U.S. Marines in 2004. Agence France Presse reported that Canadian uh, special forces were at the Toussaint Louverture airport. Uh, a few days before Aristide was ousted, the uh, uh, David Bouglassi at the Ottawa Citizen reported that Canadian special forces had been dispatched to Haiti, but it was all framed as, as uh, like protecting the Canadian ambassador and and, and but so yeah, so the secret the secretive component is is a uh, uh, important part of uh, of what they're all about from both the decision makers and the and the military's uh, uh, perspective, which runs counter, quite frankly, to uh, to democracy. Well, and and diplomatically as well, because Canada famously said it wasn't going to take part militarily in the Iraq War, the second one. And uh, you you have a list of where these special forces have been deployed: Iraq, Yugoslavia, Colombia, Peru. I don't know what was going on there. Afghanistan, naturally, but also Ukraine. And do we know uh, what? I mean, we know that Canadian military has been in Ukraine in the western part of Ukraine training. And supplying uh, the coup government, uh, the Kiev coup government, there for quite a long time. But there's been rumors that it goes further than that, uh, involving JTF2. Yeah, well, New York Times reported that Canadian special forces were on the ground 
in a story that talked about U.S. Uh, special forces, said that also Canadian, there was one or two other countries that they included. Then, uh, that's maybe about um, six months ago, then a couple months after that, or that, yeah, so then in response to that, Puglesi at Ottawa Citizen uh, contacted and they they just said we we won't we won't confirm or deny, and then about a month after that, Global News uh, confirmed that there were Canadian special forces on the ground. It was it was the, Anita Anand, the defense minister's response to these questions was quite was quite interesting. She 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 just basically said you were being the journalists were being unpatriotic by oh. asking the questions. It was, it was almost just like that 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 direct. Um, uh, so, so they played up. I mean, they used the the fact that the the their uh, they operated secrecy to, uh, um, you know, to to, to not have that uh, uh, come public. You know, in the, in the case of uh, the Peru thing, right? The Peru thing was the um, um, in uh, Fuji, during Fujimori's uh, dictatorship in in Peru in ninety uh, six, uh, I believe it was there the. Um, the rebels took the Japanese uh, uh, leftist guerrilla group took the Japanese uh, uh, embassy uh, and uh, right, a, right. a bunch of hostages. And uh, in the book um, uh, Nous étions invincibles, which is the only book, it's a former special forces off, uh, JTF2 officer who wrote it, uh, and then he was uh, he was uh, it was blocked. The military blocked it from being published, and he was he was actually uh, charged. Because uh, they obviously sign, they sign these like uh, confidential uh, confidentiality agreements even after they leave. Um, he talked about how uh, they were dispatched to uh, to Peru during that, and, and that was like a massacre. They, you know, we don't again, we don't know like you know, <laughs> they they killed all the guerrillas uh, when they finally went into the embassy. It was like a you know long thirty day, fifty day hostage uh, kind of situation. Um, so yeah, you know, in that book he discusses going, just being dispatched to uh, Colombia, and and being pursued by the FARC rebels, and he didn't know that he he was like um, he was trying to get this uh, this prominent, uh, the son of a of a top uh, Colombian politician. Uh, uh, out like a out of a, a situation, and and so he the FARC like pursued them hard and and like actually killed I believe one or two of the it was with some American special forces. Uh, so you know like this he's he made these claims. It's a you know it was a really serious uh, book and you know he details it all out. Uh, we we can't be sure it's true because it's all operating in this sort of. Um, secretive kind of uh, domain but again same thing david puglesi has a book about canadian special forces where he talks about them being dispatched to congo there's a crazy story in the mid 90s in the congo and coming under attack and um but uh yeah so so it so it's uh you know how wide how how widely the canadian government is dispatching these special forces is it's it's unclear um but they are dispatching them uh and they aren't aren't telling us about it. Well, I mean, they, what they tell us about the budgets too. I, I wonder how much, uh, what kind of a dark budget exists there as well. Again, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking with Eve Angler. Eve's an independent Montreal-based journalist. He's an author, written a, do a dozen books on Canadian foreign policy. His website is eveangler.com. I'm just going through, honestly, some of his recent work. You're a pretty busy guy over there. Even now, uh, I guess everybody that is paying attention knows that uh, 
what's going on in Ukraine and, and this uh, contretemps with Russia is, is merely a prelude, uh, an entree for uh, what's expected to be a larger conflagration with China. Uh, your article, Canada Orders Double Standard on Military Academic Ties, uh, is, is a disturbing look at some of the propaganda efforts in this country. I, I remember seeing Chinese uh, uh, academics being vilified in the United States. I don't know, this was like three years ago, maybe, or four, just before the Meng Wanzhou uh, kidnapping by the Canadian government and, and all that. But they were they were hunting down uh, academics and in, in uh, Chinese uh, nationals working at American universities and, and even Americans with Chinese heritage. Now, this sounds to me like there's something similar going on here. Am I jumping to conclusions? No, it's uh, it's pretty explicitly following the the U.S. Uh, playbook or some of what's happened in the U.S. A a um, a CIA linked uh, firm based in uh, Salt Lake City put out a report or probably fed their report to the Global Mail about how all these Canadian universities and academics had collaborated one way or another with Chinese academics that were tied to that had collaborated with the Chinese military and uh, and the globe put it on the front page a couple times a couple of days and uh, it prompted the the um, and other media picked up from there and it prompted the federal government to bring in these restrictions around the, the you know educations of provincial jurisdiction but the federal government's responsible for all these big uh, you know national funding uh, research funding initiatives. So basically restrict Canadian academics access to that funding if they collaborate in any way with some Chinese academic that has any connection to the Chinese military. And, and you know, while they're doing that, I mean, I don't I don't I, you know, the idea of getting militaries off of university campuses and out, out of research, I, I broadly am quite sympathetic to that idea. Uh, but the reality is, is that there's Canadian universities that that not just that the Canadian academics who collaborate with U.S. academics that have funding from the U.S. military. I mean, there's probably, you know, like 20 percent of all Canadian academics are, do that because there's so many American academics have, you know, some relationship to the uh, U.S. military. But but there's actually Canadian universities that announce contracts for U.S. military uh, research initiatives. There's, you know, we talk about millions and millions. One at UBC that's like five million dollars. It was just announced not not long ago. Five million dollar um, that a Canadian uh, academic uh, got for to do a research for the uh, uh, for the U.S. military. So, you know, they announce in Dalhousie. I quote this release press releases from Dalhousie where they announce uh, these U.S. Uh, military officials coming up to to like you know talk about what they have on offer and you know get involved in, in some of these uh, some of this stuff and of course there's a long history of Canadian academics having uh, provide all kinds of uh, support for US uh, you know biological and chemical weapon programs and uh, all kinds of stuff that uh, that's uh, you know strengthened US military power and uh, is I think most people would consider pretty pretty odious kind of uh well well don't they even set up stalls like career fair stalls in universities you know come and join the u.s department of defense and do the research that you always wanted to do etc yeah 
I haven't, I haven't like, you know, done a deep research dive into it, but yeah, that's essentially what the Dalhousie uh, press releases were, were doing. And we should also mention, of course, you know, Canadian military is a huge funder of, of, uh, of academic research, but, and probably if you looked into it, I bet you the, the UK, I, I, I bet the Canadian academics have more ties to, to British academics that are tied to the, to the British military than they are to, than they do, you know, Chinese academics that have connections to the, to the Chinese military and probably same thing. You look at, you know, the Israeli military, French military even. Um, so, so this is all part of this sort of, you know, uh, China's our enemy, uh, even though, I mean, you know, who could possibly argue that the Chinese military is a more uh, nefarious institution than the U.S. military. I mean, the U.S. military is just... The CBC, we hear it every (laughs) single day, (laughs) don't we? Jesus. Uh, Eve, we're we're fast running out of time, but I I don't want to leave before getting to your your mild questioning, uh, but not questioning that she's used to, I suppose, of Canada's um, uh, right honourable minister of sports, uh, Pascal Saint-Ange. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your meeting? You've got it You've got a, up at your website, sports minister embarrasses herself and servile Canadian media. About a, a little bit about your recent encounter with the minister. Do you want to talk a little bit about that in our final few minutes? Yeah, it, you know, between trying to uh, that morning, uh, Justin Trudeau was speaking at uh, the Palais des Congrès here in Montreal, and then it, then he was speaking at another event, where, which I didn't know where it was, but I thought it was somewhere downtown, which it didn't end up being. Between that, I uh, uh, trying to find Trudeau, I uh, I came across the fact that the sports minister was doing this uh, uh, press event tour at this uh, at this uh, tech company in downtown Old Montreal, uh, um, and uh, I went to this tour was basically a tour of like hothouse technology, you know, like hothouse tomatoes. And so I, I, I went to this thing and I, I uh, waited for the minister for about 20 minutes. Uh, I was supposed to uh, be able to ask a question and her, her media flack sort of seemed basically I told her my name and then I think she, she did well, she did. I, I know she did a search of my name and then started having doubts and, and basically. <laughs> Gee, I, why? <laughs> understood that I wasn't just the uh, the normal kind of uh, reporter that would just ask you know whatever completely unimportant question, and so her so uh, rather than allow me to ask this question at the end, her immediate people tried to kind of hustle her out of the room, but I I sort of stopped to ask her um, and uh, this question about you know on what's the moral grounds at which you're making decisions to say that Russian and Belarusian athletes shouldn't be able to participate in international sporting competitions. And Saint-Ange has been an aggressive proponent of that, saying that even they shouldn't even be allowed to participate under, under you know, a uh, uh, neutral banner, not even. Uh, and so she's been a real hard, hard proponent of that. And um, and I said, well, do you, do you feel the same way when uh, after the U.S. invaded Iraq? And I asked the question, so she stopped it to, you know, she's right next to me. I had a good video of her hearing the question. When she heard the question, she did this great little smirk, uh, <laughs> and looks looks away, looks back at me, and then just like bolts out of the room. 
And then I followed her. I followed her. And I said, "Well, how about Canadian athletes after the bombing of uh, Libya or Afghanistan?" And she just keeps walking, and then she has to wait for the elevator in the room. And she's like, <laughs> I asked, and I'm like, "Well, how about Israeli athletes with their uh, occupation and and apartheid?" And uh, looks stands waiting for the elevator. Looks very uncomfortable, and then she gets in the elevator, refuses to say anything. And I, and I pause, I, I give her some time to like, you know, to respond, nothing. And her, her assistant is being very polite, politely trying to divert me away and not allow the question to be kind of hang out in the air. And, uh, and then she just gets in the elevator and, and, uh, and goes off. Um, the video clip uh, is mine on my Twitter, 1.4 million views. And there's, my <laughs> guess is it's, over 5 million people that have seen it because there's another on Facebook that has 1.2 million Arab in Arab and Facebook and it's translated in all kinds of languages. Um, so, and, and, and I think it's, you know, what, how she responds to it is pretty good. Like it's a good minute long kind of some drama to it. But I think that what, what, what was sort of appealing about it is it's a really simple question, right? It's a, I think a question that like many people have had on their minds and yet all these journalists who have regular access to the sports minister and you know other ministers never ask right yeah. so I'm you know I'm asking this really simple question and she's just completely um, you know re- either unable or refuses uh, uh, to respond to it so so I think that you know it, it, it it's not just an embar- it's an obvious embarrassment of her uh, but it's it's and, and the government but it, it's an embarrassment of quite frankly of the whole like uh, media sphere that has, uh, you know, not bothered to ask the question. And, and you know, I got, the, you know, uh, Al Jazeera had me on, a, a number of international, all, all, you know, Venezuelan media reported, Chinese media, Russian media, Turkish media reported on it, um, but not, not, no Canadian media. Well, and, I saw it. I actually saw it on, on Jimmy Dore, which is you know, yeah. a pretty prominent American show, online show. Uh, and the, the, this two screen save images of the minister, uh, the second one, I, with her little smirk, uh, it's like she's saying, oh, behave, you know, and it's like it's all just a joke, but it, it's not so much. But it does prove uh, Canadian hypocrisy. And when it comes to sports, uh, it's apples and oranges. couldn't resist that one eve um that's all the time we got uh again eveangler.com to find eve's work you're busy as crap i see and you're writing great stuff as always and getting in the face and asking the tough questions and even the easy questions that are too tough for canadian media to ask uh you're a credit to your your nation eve thank you thanks okay till the next time then eh? thank you thanks chris all right The economy collapsed back in 1929. The New Deal threw out a lifeline. They passed laws back then to regulate the banks, to control the base impulses within the bankers' ranks. But by 1999, Glass-Steagall was repealed. The leash was off the bankers, and they had a field day investing our deposits in lots of risky bets, thinking only of the most profit they could get it was 2008 and the panic was on the banks were all collapsing the boom times were gone the panic was on the panic was on 
homeowners couldn't pay all those mortgages subprime that the bankers had been selling so much of the time. So Congress took action and bailed out the rich with their message for the rest of us. Ain't life a bitch? It was 2008 and the panic was on. The banks were all collapsing, the boom times were gone, the panic was on. Panic was on. Then they passed legislation to re-regulate the banks. Kinda like the old laws called Dodd-Frank. Entered Jamie Diamond, John Stumpf, and Greg Becker, who threw around their money like some plutocratic wrecker. And once they got the law repealed, they still had cash to burn to make lots more bad investments with a very high return. Like any Ponzi scheme, it fell apart, and then me and my fellow Americans are left to bail them out again. Yeah, it's 2023, and the panic is on. The banks are all collapsing.